So I bet none of you know this, but today is the day of baptism. Yay! And it's also a day of celebration. So I prepared what is, an, I hope, a very short, concise talk about ten thoughts about baptism. So I'm going to start with what is baptism. And uh, when we look at the word baptism, it comes from the work of the Greek word baptismo, the verb form of it, baptism. The Greek word baptisma, the verb form is baptiza. It means to plunge under or to dip completely under or to immerse in water. So the Greek word for sprinkling, uh, as sometimes people have thought of t- in terms of baptism being a sprinkling, sprinkling was never associated with or used in the form uh, related to baptism. And nowhere in Scripture was water actually brought to someone that they would be baptized. So in Acts 8, we have a, a quaint picture, quite quaint, because Philip was actually transported over to visit this man from Ethiopia. And in that dialogue, the man made a profession of faith and followed Jesus. As a result of that, the Ethiopian uh, asked Philip if he couldn't be baptized And there was a river just over to the side. So the two of them went over to the river, and the Ethiopian was immersed in water. Then Philip disappeared. That's the exciting part of the story. (laughs) So the second uh, idea of baptism this morning is what baptism is not. So baptism doesn't save us. If baptism was required to save us, then the thief on the cross who believed on Jesus as he was dying on the cross could not have been saved. But Jesus told him, don't worry, today you will join me in paradise. And the next point under that is baptism doesn't make you a Christian. So rather than, um, rather than making you a Christian, Christians tell the testimony that they are following Christ by following him in baptism. And the other point about baptism is it's neither baptism nor repentance makes you perfect or sinless. That's the sad part of the message today. So there's no outward act that can do it. It's that inward transformation of following Jesus. And one of the ways of following Jesus is our baptism. So what do we do? It says um, the the symbolisms related to baptism starts in Romans 6, 1 through 5. And because the message is so quaint, I thought I would just read it directly from the message. So what do we do? Keep on sinning so that God can keep on forgiving? I should hope not. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize we packed up and left that house for good? That is what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. When we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace, a new life in a new land. That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. When we are lowered into the water, it is like a burial of Jesus. And when we are raised up out of the water, it is like the resurrection of Jesus. Each of us is raised into a light, filled world by our Father so that we can see where we're going in a new grace sovereign country. Isn't that neat? I love that the message has a way of untangling 
what could otherwise be complicated and just make it hit home. So there's two reasons for us to be baptized. The first one is our loving act of obedience to God. So as followers of Jesus, we can see Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. God authorized and commanded me to commission you to go out and train everyone you meet far and near in this way of life, marking them by baptism in the threefold name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, Peter was in obedience to Christ's commissioning as he preached to the people of Jerusalem and thousands of them were saved. Acts 2, 37 to 40 goes on to say what Peter did. It says the people had been cut to the quick and Peter asked, or they asked Peter, so what shall we do? And Peter said, change your life. Turn to God and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins are forgiven. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Get out while you can. Get out of this sick and stupid culture. That's the message. I didn't write it. But isn't that just the message? Isn't that today's message? You know, we talk about repentance, and repentance is really simply a word that means to change your life, to get out of that sick culture and turn around and go God's way. So the second reason for following the Lord in baptism is as a public profession or testimony of our faith in Jesus Christ. So baptism symbolizes that you are God's, that you are born again of the Holy Spirit, and that you've entered your Christian journey. It's that simple. So the fifth point that I would make this morning is that about the baptism's historical setting. So we find that in the next to the last book of the Old Testament in Zechariah, it speaks of a fountain that would be opened for the family of David and the leaders of Jerusalem for washing away their sins. That's in Zechariah 13.1. The last book of the Old Testament and in the last verses, Malachi states four through five, uh, four, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. But also look ahead. I'm sending Elijah the prophet to clear the way for the big day of God, the decisive judgment day. So the next to the last book and the last book are prophesying something great is going to happen. Then 400 years of silence. 400 years without a word from God. The heavens were silent, and the Old Testament ends abruptly. I get lost without the Lord if I haven't heard him in the last four seconds. What would it be like to build four, five, six generations without a word from God? After 400 years of heaven's heart-wrenching silence, the New Testament accounts break forth in unison. Four gospel narratives of an Elijah-type character, John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, baptizing Jesus in the waters of the Jordan. 
What a contrast. From nothing to four occasions where at the beginning of the New Testament, all four Gospels speak of the baptism of Jesus by a man named John the Baptist. What a way to break a 400-year fast of silence. It's not unusual for us to read the story of Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist without really understanding the historical context of what has been going on and how we miss the message of God because of that. For the message was spoken in a context snuggled between the great divide, between the old and the new. Jesus had been living with his family in Galilee in a quiet anonymity until he was 30 years old. His cousin, John the Baptist, as we know him, was six uh, six months older than he. John was the son of Zechariah the priest and his wife Elizabeth, and they were of the priestly line. Jesus was the son of Joseph of the tribe of Judah through the kingly line of David. Mary, Jesus' mother, was related to Elizabeth, John's mother. Jesus and John the Baptist first met, or one could call it a meeting, when Mary, pregnant with Jesus, entered into the home of Elizabeth, who was pregnant with John. As Mary spoke, the baby John was filled with the Holy Spirit and leapt in Elizabeth's room. It's not her tomb. (laughs) She's old enough, but she's not dead yet. Uh, In the following minutes, Elizabeth, too, is filled with the Holy Spirit. And she prophesied over Mary, referring to her as the mother of my Lord. With this significant womb meeting, one cannot help but take note that there is something about these two boys that will draw them back together again in the future destiny to fulfill God's destiny. These two bloodlines of Abraham representing the priestly line of Aaron and the kingly line of David. They are very important because John would go before Jesus, John, the priesthood, would go before Jesus to prepare a way in the wilderness and to identify Jesus as Messiah, the sacrificial lamb of God. John's role of priest over Jesus' role of a coming king is very significant. Thirty years later, John the Baptist began to preach his, his message of repentance and baptism about six months before Jesus began his public ministry. John's message from the wilderness was a call to repentance, and he came to the Jews to prepare the way of the Lord to those that are waiting for the consolation of Israel, another prophetic term. The New Testament's allotment of space and priority to the placement of the baptism narrative alerts us to the importance of the baptism of of Jesus by John the Baptist. All four Gospels open with the baptism narrative. The biblical writers use the technique of primacy to draw attention to the narrative's significance. Baptism is undeniably a key narrative of the New Testament. So the sixth point I make is primacy of placement and the repetitive presentation of the baptism narrative actually highlights the significance 
of John the Baptist in preparing the way. When we look through the Gospels, remember we start with the beginning of the New Testament, four Gospel accounts of the baptism. So I'd like to just take a minute. They're all going to be up on the, on the overhead and review what each of those Gospels is presenting. So in Matthew, the Gospel, uh, Matthew in, verse, uh, in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Sorry, chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Matthew's uh, gospel account for the baptism by John begins with John the baptism testifying to his followers saying, I'm baptizing you here in the river, turning your old life in for kingdom life. The real action comes next. The main character in this drama, compared to him, I'm a mere stage, uh, stagehand, will ignite the kingdom life within you, a fire within you, the Holy Spirit within you, changing you from the inside out. He's going to clean house, make a clean sweep of your lives. He'll place everything true in the proper place before God. Everything false he'll put out with the rub in the trash to be burned. Again, the message is pretty explicit. So Matthew's role is in is uh, identifying uh, the role of John in pointing out the coming Lord. So in Mark, in, and that gospel begins with John the Baptist preparing the way followed by Jesus' baptism. But even before that, we see in Malachi and Isaiah a couple of verses that set the stage for the Mark account. So the first uh, verse we're going to look at is Mike, <coughs> Micah, no, it's Malachi 3, 1 and 2. So Malachi 3, 1 and 2 reads, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way for me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the days of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. So Isaiah 40, thunder in the desert. Prepare the way for God's arrival. Make the, stri- the road straight and smooth, a highway fit for your God. Fill in the ro- valleys, level off the hills, smooth out the ruts, clear out the, bo- uh, the rocks. Then God's bright glory will shine and everyone will see it. Yes, just as God has said. We see that both Malachi and Isaiah are prophesying of a thunderous and anointed messenger who would come to prepare the way for God's glory. After referring to these two scriptures, Mark opens his gospel account with John the baptizer and Jesus' baptism. So Mark 1.5, John the baptizer appears in the wild, preaching of the baptism of life change that leads to the forgiveness of sins. People thronged to him from Judea and Jerusalem. And as they confessed their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River into a changed life. Remember the historical context we spoke of. 400 years. Now the people have heard the the prophecy back in the Old Testament from Malachi, from Isaiah, but they don't know what to expect. 400 years later, we see John calling people preparing the way 
I'm not the one. Come, he's saying. I'm preparing the way for one who does come. In Mark 1, 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth. That means Jesus is coming out of the place he's been tucked away for 30 years. Jesus hasn't been on the scene. He's been nailing nails and sharpening tools and He's, a, he's a, a carpenter, so he's cutting wood. He has not been in the forefront for any reason. So now, 30 years later, Jesus comes from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. The moment he came out of the water, he saw the sky split open, and God's Spirit, like a dove, came down on him. Along with the Spirit, a voice, You are my Son. Chosen and marked by my love, pride of my life. Wow. A voice from heaven when the heavens have been silent 400 years. Now, I, I, I sometimes put myself in a picture like that and say, okay, where would I be? You know, okay, so I'm not the baptizer and I'm not Jesus, but I want to be in the crowd. I want to be right there with my toe in the water. And I want to see the heavens open, the dove come down, but more importantly, I want to hear heaven's voice. That's what we're expecting today, right? We expect it every day. It can come, heaven's voice. So next we look at Luke, but when we look at Luke's gospel, there's so much about the baptism and the preparation for these characters that I just put it in an outline form. And when you see that outline, you go, wow. Three chapters dedicated to introducing Jesus is here. The first, Luke 1, 1 to 25, is foretelling the birth of John the Baptist. That was a big story in itself. Elizabeth is too old to have a baby. Now, Elizabeth is going to have a baby. That was the talk of the town. So the second one is, the, is Luke 1, 26 to 38. The birth of Jesus is foretold. And nobody understood what that meant. Nobody got this Messiah thing. And Luke 1, 39 to 56, the womb babies meet. Remember where John gets baptized in the Holy Spirit and he does a backflip in Elizabeth's tummy? And then we move to Luke 1, 57 to 80, where we have the actual birth of John the Baptist. He actually came forth. And followed with Luke 2, the birth of Jesus. And in Luke 3, we have the baptism where the heavens were open and the dove descends down upon Jesus. That's what Luke is about. That's three chapters. So out of all of the books that we've looked at, we're now going to go to John. The first three books, the first chapters are dedicated to introducing John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. So that John's gospel doesn't actually give you a detailed recapture of the story of the baptism rather John the Baptist just cries out with the following words in John 1 29 to 32 in the message here he is God's Passover lamb he forgives the sin of the world and I knew nothing about who he was only this that my task has been to get Israel ready to recognize him as God revealer This is why I came here baptizing with water, giving you a good bath and scrubbing sins from your life so that you can get a fresh start with God. I watched the Spirit 
like a dove flying down out of the sky and making his uh, himself at home. And there's a unique word. Making himself at home in, not on, in him. So John has a way of personalizing this story and bringing it to a new depth just with one word, I in. Now Jesus with the baptism of the Holy Spirit in him. So I would like to look at uh, the seventh point, and that's about Jesus' baptism itself. Because there's a little struggle going on there. In great humility, the sinless Son of God requested John the Baptist to baptize him. John insisted, or John resisted Jesus, saying that he was the one that needed to be baptized. He was very insistent that, I need you to baptize me. I'm the sinner here. But John, uh, Jesus could not accept that act of humility because uh, in order to fulfill God's destiny for Jesus, Jesus had to be baptized, and John was the one. So John submitted to Jesus, but in pure humility, because he himself was really the object that needed cleansing the most. Well, when we look at this, we see that the reason that Jesus had to be baptized isn't because of Jesus' sin. For Christ emptied himself out and made himself of no reputation. He had been made in the likeness of sinful flesh. With this in mind, baptism by John was an imperative. As if he needed to be washed, although he was perfectly pure. He was made sin for us. John's humility was set aside so that by his obedience, God's perfect will could be accomplished. So now we're going to look at how the heavens were opened. The heavens opened as Jesus came up out of the water and God spoke, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm very very pleased or well pleased. This was the inaugural address from heaven. With the Father's affirmation of Jesus... As he steps into the final phase of his earth life assignment, the heavens are open, one, to encourage Jesus in his undertaking to go forward knowing of the glory and the joy that is set before him, two, as a prelude to the open heaven which would occur again as his assignment on earth was completed, and three, to encourage believers to receive Jesus as a Lord and to surrender our will to, to God as it is, it is in and through Jesus that heaven is open to man. The last time I, I spoke here, we talked about uh, hosting the presence of the Lord. And we, we especially focused on the idea of an open heaven, an open heaven. No longer closed, four and a half, four Centuries of closure and silence, no longer, but an open heaven where communion with God is open and available. So in Matthew three sixteen and 17, the moment Jesus came out of the baptismal water, the skies opened and we saw the spirit, God's spirit. It looked like a dove. 
descending and landing on him. And along with the spirit, a voice, this is my son, chosen and marked by my love, delight of my life. Christ saw it. John saw it. And it's probable that all the uh, bystanders saw it. Because it was heaven's intent that Jesus' baptism would be his public inauguration. How many of you have watched an inauguration of one of our presidents on the TV or whatever? They are huge undertakings, thousands of dollars, thousands of people, thousands of details to put something like this on. And all God did for announcing the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords has come into this world for salvation. All he did was open heaven, release the Holy Spirit as a dove, and speak verbally in the hearing of the people there. I think I'd rather attend that inauguration. That would be my preference. In the beginning of the new world, Christ as God didn't need to receive the Holy Spirit. But as Isaiah 11.2 and Isaiah 61.1 had foretold that the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon him, it was necessary that the Spirit did so. Jesus was to be a prophet, and prophets always spoke by the Spirit of God who came upon them. In order to execute the prophetic office, it must not be out of Jesus' divine nature. Rather, it is this assignment that Jesus must prove by the power of the Holy Spirit as man would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to continue with the same power and authority as Jesus after he ascended to the Father. So it was Jesus going as our forerunner, moving by the power of the Holy Spirit, who denied working in his, in his divine natural powers, the divinity, He set that aside and worked by the power of the Holy Spirit to show you that whatever he did, we can do. I didn't see anybody writing that down. Whatever he did, we can do. Okay? Amen, right? So lastly, the last thing I'd like to look at is another baptism. I thought we just had a baptism. Jesus promised his believers that he would not leave them alone, but he would send them a helper. And Jesus would come as the head of the church. As such, the Spirit descended upon Jesus that by him all believers would derive their gifts and comforts through the Spirit. Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, being the forerunner, this Christ received gifts for man that he might give gifts to man, the first being the gift of the Holy Spirit. So today at the baptism, each person, when they come out of the water, we're asking that you pray for them to personally receive the baptism of the Spirit, to receive gifts, words, and refreshing from the Lord. We can all expect to do amazing things in, through, and with each person as they have obediently followed Jesus' example in baptism. After the baptism, we're going to celebrate and rejoice all that the Lord 
is doing in the life of this church, his body. We're going to celebrate the baptism and the community that the Lord has blessed us with and continues to draw us closer to him and each other. And in closing, I would just pray that out of these clusters of ten thoughts about baptism today, that you'll find one or two of those thoughts and hold on to them and use them like God fodder. So you can deepen your search for God's thoughts and wisdom, encourage you to dig deeper into his word for greater insight, and to stir you to seek his comfort and revelation in and through prayer. So God has a divine appointment with each of us today. And my prayer is that none of us miss it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. So I'm going to close. Uh, Ministry time or not. There's always opportunities here uh, for people who are here and need prayer. So we'll have some of the ministry team here. You can come forward for uh, ministry as we close. So, Father, we are so thankful for this celebration day. We are thankful for each life that will be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit today. And we just pray, Lord, that by this baptism, each one of us will join with them in this celebration, that we will be interceding and praying that you will release every good gift into each person as they have obediently followed you. And I just pray, Father, that none of us will grow weary of hearing of the ordinances of baptism or any other of the ordinances that we follow. But we will always see something new, something different we haven't seen before because you continue to be God revealer in us. And we just welcome you to inspire us to go deeper as we ponder these thoughts today. Lord, we just ask you to bless us and Uh, Go before us today in this baptism ceremony that it will be a great joy to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you'd like to come forward.